0: And I think for me, my dad just gave me that ability to be curious and have high hopes and dream big because he did. And so if you have that experience in your own life, it's infectious.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Daddy Issues Podcast with me and Harrod George Carey. Daddy Issues is a podcast exploring fatherlessness, but more specifically, fatherlessness in successful people. I want to prove that regardless of whatever daddy issues you think you have, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. If you like what you hear, please do feel free to rate, review, and subscribe as I love hearing all your feedback, but more importantly, it helps the podcast get to more ears and the more ears, the merrier. So thank you so much. I'm going to let you get on with the episode and I hope you have a wonderful listen. Because of quarantine, I'm going to be mixing my pre and post quarantine interviews up as I think it's really important for you to hear some of the voices during quarantine that I think are perhaps more relevant to how you may be experiencing life right now with this slightly extra layer of introspection. In today's episode I am speaking to the wonderful Jada Cesar. Jada is an activist, a model, an actor and an all-round creative mastermind. While studying a master's in child psychotherapy, Jada noticed the powerful and devastating effect the media has on young people's development as well as a total lack of representation on, for instance, different body types. So, Instead of doing what was expected after attaining her master's, she began campaigning on Instagram and grew a dedicated and passionate following instantaneously, soon becoming one of the UK's first plus-size models championing self-esteem, body confidence, and mental wellness. After gaining this somewhat unexpected newfound platform following her empowering and uplifting messages, Jada went on to shoot for global brands such as Nike, ASOS, Vogue, Mango, Women's Health, Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, and has been the face of L'Oreal Beauty unsurprisingly she is asked to share her insights on panel discussions most recently giving talks for Adidas and Sweaty Betty and is still very much a leader in body positivity running the London Marathon in her underwear in 2018 which led to her creating the Celebrate You campaign in 2019 where over 900 women joined her and ran 10k also in their underwear I love that image She is also a fellow podcaster with her podcast Unsubscribe, excitingly reaching the top 50 international podcast chart within the first week. Unbelievably impressive. In the podcast, Jada interviews a mix of extraordinary women and uncovers the skills they've developed to make a stand against adversity, push back on societal pressures, and stay mentally sane in the process. Jada is also an ambassador for UN Women UK, an avid supporter of the Royal Foundation's mental health charity, Young Minds. Jada's mission in life is to help others feel empowered which I loved reading because it's my mission as well, to empower people through storytelling. So, Mm. Jada, what a bio. Welcome to Daddy Issues, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thank you for inviting me. This is so exciting because, firstly, I've wanted you on the podcast for so long, and secondly, you're my very first online. Podcast experience.
0: Dun dun dun. So this could work, or all of the things <laughs> yeah. that I'm about to share could just never be heard. Again. Oh my god!
1: <laughs> I know that's what's so terrifying. Like, what if we come out? Anyway, it won't happen. We'll be fine. We'll get. It will work. Yeah. Oh my god. Um. But firstly, so we're in isolation, hence us being over the internet. I cannot not ask you, how are you finding isolation? How are you? How are you finding it?
0: Um, how long do we have <laughs> um i have, I'm currently I'll talk to ha- about how I felt today and today I woke up and I felt energized I feel like I've got purpose I feel positive I feel happy I feel energetic I'm gonna go for a, a long walk later this afternoon I've got a project that is currently my partners currently editing um we've got a video on YouTube that we're releasing on Sunday we're releasing Wednesdays and Sundays so I feel like we've always got something in the mix getting made at the moment which I love um but that said it hasn't always been like that I've had days where I've felt like I've not wanted to get out of bed I've had days where I've not wanted to move my body or exercise I've just wanted to make like yummy cakes and just sit on my sofa binging Netflix and that's also okay um (laughs) And there's been some days where I felt really like doom and gloom, like what's going on in the world? Maybe I just, you know, what what's the point of even making or working or waking up? Like, who knows what the world's going to happen? But I can quickly, mm. like, get myself out of those moments. And thankfully, today, I don't feel like that. I feel very positive.
1: Yeah. How do you, out of interest, not that this is a podcast in any way about coronavirus, but how, and we don't want to make it, we hear too much about it right now, but how Mm. do you get yourselves out of those moments?
0: I just let myself have the moment rather than trying to restrain Mm -hmm. myself from being in there or try to pull myself out or restrict myself, because then I think that can allow you to get into a a bigger, uh, like falling down a bigger spiral so I just if I Mm -hmm. want a day where I don't feel like I've got any energy I give myself the permission to just have that day but I give myself a time limit so I'll say look if in two days time you're still not doing your usual type of like I give myself an hour a day to exercise whether it's a long slow walk or go for a run or put on a YouTube video or follow one of my friends lives I have to move my body in some way and usually Mm -hmm. I'll like give myself like Sunday off or if I'm feeling really low energy I won't try to resist that but um yeah I always set a time limit on giving myself Mm. time to mull over and contemplate life and then I just think okay what what's got me in this mood because I love a good hack and a mind hack and I think right (laughs) something has led me to feeling like this and usually there's a reason so I'm I remember when I felt like this two days ago and it's because I woke up and the first thing that I looked at was the death tolls And it was getting greater and greater. And I just Mm. immediately thought, okay, I'll put the phone down and jump in the shower. And I got out of the shower and I was still feeling really low. And I was thinking, why am I feeling in such a mood? And I can't explain what the mood is, but I'm in a mood and I can't shift it. Mm. And I was like, well, of course, you wake up and the first thing you do is bring that negative energy into your bed with you.
1: And so I thought, okay, right,
0: I'm actually banning myself from any news or any social media first thing in the morning.
1: Yeah, I've done exactly the same.
0: And I think that's,
1: yeah, and I I know a lot of other people who've done the whole sort of cull um, media news thing because it sounds bizarre to obviously switch off from the news and lots of people maybe might think that that's, you know, you're being, you're trying to sort of ignore something that's that's going on, but actually it's exactly Mm -hmm. that thing of it can set your day up so differently and especially because we are hearing such similar things over and over again. So it's, yeah, it's... You got to look after yourself in this in this time as much as everyone else, you know. Yeah. And exactly like you the long walks. That is something that whenever this ends, which we don't know yet, the long walks are something that I think I'm going to take on with me forever mm. and ever amen. Just going with my thoughts. It's transforming for me at least. Mm.
0: Yeah, I've realized that, you know, people some people need meditation and mm. I just need processing time. So before yeah. I used to be a driver and would drive everywhere. And my commute to get to my old modeling agent was almost 45 minute drive away. And so I would drive there. And in that time, just listen to music and just be with my thoughts and didn't realize how much I needed it until I stopped driving. So I don't have a car at the moment. I don't need one. And I haven't had that hour of just a break with myself, especially now that I'm like living yeah. with my boyfriend at the moment. And we just have so much fun together. Um and it's still such a new relationship that I don't often and we do have our own time for sure, but I don't necessarily say, Okay, no, now I have to go and take my hour if for example we're watching a really fun TV series or we're playing a game or we're having a good conversation. I won't say, Okay, wait, I need to take my hour, but when I was traveling a lot, I was forced to. And so I realized the benefits in that that I don't experience enough. But since the lockdown, I've been going out for that hour walk again and being able to tap mm. into that side of myself
1: yeah especially oh 100 and especially as someone who works for themselves has their own business is self-employed mm. I don't know I feel like it's the only time I let myself have a break because otherwise I'm constantly mm. thinking oh I've got should I be doing that or I should be doing that I don't know anyway it's a there's it's a gift I think that's come out of isolation as is people have found these little modes of what works for them with being able to process information or as you say relax and meditate
0: yeah we're 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 finding the value in the moments that we can't put a price on and we've all known Mm. that those little moments are important but how much practice have we had in making sure we carve out the time
1: for them is what I've been thinking a lot about so much thinking so much thinking it's been um it's been a whirlwind Even thinking back like a few weeks, I'm like, God, I've got such a different mindset to the mindset I had then. And it's Mm. only been a few weeks. It's like everything is just so accelerated.
0: Mm. Anyway,
1: we could probably do a whole podcast on that, but we're not supposed to.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But that's not what you're here to listen to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So what I like to do with my guests is I always want them to take me back to the beginning and set the scene. Yeah, tell us a bit about, about where you grew up and your family dynamic.
0: Okay. So I am one of four. I have two older sisters and a little brother. I grew up in London in West London. I um would say that I come from quite a traditional family. My dad came from Turkey and came o- over to England when he was 18 and worked and worked and worked and eventually set up his own restaurant and business. And I kind of grew up within the family business, my mum stayed at home and then at one point transitioned to help my dad so they ran the business together and I just remember my childhood being, you know, with the family, like we were quite close growing up and we were always together, my dad would say stuff like why would I go on holiday alone when I, we could all go as a family? which now I'm like actually no I want my alone time without my kids when I go I want a holiday with my with Tyson with my my partner and not have my kids I think that's healthy whereas my dad was all about us and so we always went together and always did stuff um Sundays would be like our time he would drive us to the park he taught us how to like ride bikes I remember him. I've got a vision of him always um, in Hyde Park, like with all of these broadsheet newspapers and me and my brother, because there's quite an age gap between my two older sisters and me and my little brother. And we're part of the same, like same mum and dad. But I think my dad didn't necessarily want any more kids after two. And my mum accidentally fell pregnant twice and so um right that was yeah me and my little brother but, so then there's quite an age gap between us so there was we're kind of like the second stage of kids that they raised and so they were in a different place and my dad was way more relaxed work less and so I always have a vision of him reading all these big broadsheet newspapers whilst we I was into rollerblades as a girl as a young girl
1: and my brother would have his bike and we'd just be in the park riding around yeah so tell me a bit about so your dad was from turkey so tell me a bit about him and his in his upbringing
0: so he was one of three he was the youngest um his family were very academic so my uncle was an engineer and my auntie was a gynecologist and they their my cousins went on to be um uh, like a child pediatric heart surgeon, pediatric heart surgeon and other medical um, occupations. And so Wow. my dad kind of was the one that was the rebel of the family and basically left Turkey to just learn English and start a business, which when I was a kid, I didn't realize how respectable that is to not, to come into a mm. foreign country and learn how to do your taxes and set up a company and I've only really appreciated that as I've been older and set up my, so when I set up my company my dad wasn't around so I didn't really realize that's what he did when he came here so that was an interesting moment mm. for me but yeah he just came over here and then worked and worked and worked and then 10 years on met my mum
1: and the rest is history <laughs> yeah what was it that he I might have missed this at the beginning but what was what is it that he what was his business what did he st- set up
0: So he had a restaurant so he worked as um like a head chef and um kind of manager of a restaurant when he first came to England in London and then he just worked his way up and then eventually had his own restaurant um he had a toy shop at one point apparently I don't remember oh this my was God. the time that I was born But um, my dad was an entrepreneur. He really did try to do lots of things. He was really into shares. And and this was all stuff that he just figured out. Um, It wasn't necessarily skills that had been given to him. Like I said, my his family in Turkey were all um, in the medical, mostly in the medical world and really academic. And he was the one that went the other way. Um, But he was all about family. And so he would. I I, I, never, I never really realized this until I started reflecting back, that he would position himself in a way that he was able to still have a life with us as well as mm-hmm. make money.
1: What was your relationship like with him growing up?
0: Um, I really, I, we had a really good relationship. I mean, it's hard to really remember because there's, I'm one of four. So I do remember his attention I wasn't necessarily like a mummy, a daddy's girl, or a a per like a person that I remember. His his attention was basically having to be shared out between all of us, as well as run a business and look after my mom. And we have nieces and nephews that were not far apart in age to my brother, and so my family was so busy. But I think our relationship was one of which where my dad was quite strict, but because I was in the second wave Mm -hmm. of his kids he had softened up by the time it came to me and my brother but my dad had certain principles like I wasn't allowed to stay at my best friend's house throughout the whole of secondary school because he's like why do you want to stay in someone else's bed when you have your home bed to come home to there were some protection strategies that he had that I didn't understand because he would just say no these are my rules and that's that you're not allowed to stay Mm -hmm. over anyone's house you're not allowed to go out after a certain time like I don't want to hear about a boyfriend until you're married which does not make any sense but it was it was like there's certain respect that you need to have um but at the same in the same breath he wasn't completely detached from us because i i always have this memory of me being in the car and i'm such a grump in the morning i hate early mornings although i get up early all every day but i'm i take a while to wake up and so he would drop me off at school in the car and i would literally just sit in the car half awake and he would always try to make conversation with me which at the time you're like oh you're so annoying just like shut up but you know that's a grumpy teenager (laughs) but then as I got older and him not being around I'm like that's so nice that somebody actually wanted to set you up for the day and make the effort to get you out of that little grump that you're in and connect Mm -hmm. with you essentially and so I remember him being like that with me and also just always curious As to what I'm doing so he would always check in with me with work and school and be like okay what are you doing where are you at what's your goals how can you get there in a year rather like I remember a conversation saying to him look I'm about to go and do my master's in child psychotherapy and he was like okay can you do that in like six months and then do your doctorate in one year and I'm like no 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 it doesn't work like that like this is a whole one-year course and then your doctorate is three like he's like but why can't Mm -hmm. you do that in one year I'm like because you can't do that. <laughs> like, that's not the course. But he would always say, okay, <laughs> Look, you, can this, you can do this. He would always be pushing, but in a healthy, loving way, not in a way that you're yeah. inadequate if you don't. So I never felt would. any academic pressure. Mm. He would just show up. And I remember times that would yeah. be really annoying in secondary school where I'd be like, why can't mum just come to parents evening? Cause she doesn't ask half the million questions that you do. And he'd be like, no, I'm coming <laughs> in and he would come in and bring my teacher's chocolates and have like long conversations with them and I'd be like oh my god you're so embarrassing but he would (laughs) it was a part of his love and showing up that I think you only appreciate when you're older
1: oh 100 percent. sounds like he was so present in every aspect of his life absolutely I don't know how he did it you mentioned your dad not being around so why is your dad no longer around so he passed away to cancer um
0: maybe around seven years ago. I actually can't remember how long it's been, but around seven or eight years ago, it was basically when I was finishing my master's and moving into modelling. It was around that period that he died. Um, Yeah, I think that would have been seven years ago. I studied at the Tavistock and Portman Centre, which is a specialist psychotherapy unit. Um, It has some of the oldest Freudian texts there and it's, its speciality is psychotherapy and um yeah I loved it I remember my first lecture was us sitting in a room and our lecturer didn't turn up for the first half an hour and we had no papers it was just we stepped into a room that just had chairs laid out in a semicircle and I remember she did eventually show up half an hour later and she sat in front of us for another half an hour without saying anything and then after that half an hour wow. was up she just left and she was like, I'm welcome to your first lecture and left. And we were all like, what? And then I just was like, this is the place for me because I couldn't quite understand it. But it was really interesting what was happening yeah. in the room. Some people were laughing. Some people were getting really irritated and frustrated. Some people had already got their notebook out and was sat with their notebook waiting for something to happen me I was just like laughing (laughs) and having a chat with the person next to me like I'm like oh yeah of course this is going to be the first lecture we have right um but you know that's the whole part of it like what comes up for you and being mindful of what's coming up mm -hmm. so it taught us it was so rich with information just that the act of not doing anything as she went on to explain that you know you step into a room and usually you're presented with paper that paper then becomes your your barrier so then you don't have to understand what's going on between you and the lecturer because you've got that barrier of paperwork and information and an understanding of what you're here to do whereas what do you do when you don't
1: know what to do and what does that mean and so I was like yes this is for me (laughs) oh my god that's fascinating and what Um, do you think oh this is so up my street what do you think drew you in to being because obviously doing a master's in psychotherapy is is a lot it's a lot of work and it's really in depth and what do you think draws you to to humanity to the brain to understanding Mm. people
0: well I did it as an a-level um my my a-levels were English literature business sociology and psychology uh funnily enough no art in there which I couldn't do because it was in the same band as psychology and I had to choose one or the other and I ended up going for psychology And then I went on to do it as a degree and I went on to psychology and counseling. That was my degree. And then I decided to niche in on child psychotherapy particularly because first of all, I think I just had this more overbearing need to help kids because I think that if you can help them and plant a little seed or intervene and create an intervention at such a young age, you can change the trajectory of their childhood experience and adulthood life. So. Yeah, I, I felt like that was more true for me to go and do.
1: Um, Can I ask a quick I, question? Yeah. So often, and please tell me if I'm generalising here, but usually if someone has, I feel, that urge to, to help or to connect in that way, there may have been some sort of reason or trauma when they were younger that might have led them to gain such an empathy was that the same for you?
0: You know, I, I've been asked this before and I've also reflected on it before anyone asked me. And actually, no, that's a lie. Somebody, when I was going for my interview to do my master's, I was asked this question by my potential lecturer at the time. And it was a really intense interview where they it felt like a therapy session, but also an assessment of seeing how mentally sane you are to go and take this on. And I was mm. really honest with her. And I think I there's no trauma that I can remember, but I do, I am aware of the fact that I came from a big family and I know how to raise a child through having to raise nieces. Like at one point my sister was living with us um, and I had like my little niece around all the time. I would put her to sleep. Like we were a big family unit. She had broken up with her partner. Um, And then I also remember not quite know it i i also had a real interest in the words behind your feelings so i'm i don't know i always say i'm a pisces maybe that's why i'm just really empathetic and empathic but i i was always a kid that felt things like my two older sisters would bicker so much and i would get this excruciating pain in my stomach when i would hear anyone argue um because i was just a sensitive little girl and also my and i even my boyfriend knows it he loves like We have a joke that he loves like action packed films where they're like fighting and chopping heads off. And it's it's so dramatic that it's not real. But even stuff like that, I can't watch because I'm like, oh, I just feel things too much. And so there was a part of me that felt a lot. But in my family, my mum, my mum wasn't very emotionally articulate. And my dad. Didn't really know how to emotionally articulate himself either, although he tried his best and you could see them both doing their best at the time. There were certain things that I just couldn't understand so I think that led me to become curious about it for sure and then I think child mm. psychology because also when I was probably around 12 or 13 I had my first job and it was in um like a summer school we had we called them play centers so in the summer kids that broke up from education and through their primary or secondary schools no, they didn't have anywhere to go. So they would open up summer schools that you paid like one pound a day to go to. And I remember my dad having to run a business would put us into a play center and I had the best time of my life there. We would have tuck shops and play different kinds of sports games and do art and stuff. And it was just fun and I loved the play leaders. And I remember when I turned 13, I was, no, sorry. When I turned 15, I was too old to go there as a child. So I trained to become a trainee play worker. So my first job when I was 15 or 16 (laughs) was a play worker. And so that then led on to me becoming every summer like a trained play worker. And I would host Mm. different like art workshops or sports games and competitions. And we compete with the other play centers. And then when I was at university, just I didn't study any. I wasn't studying child psychotherapy at the time. It was just um, psychology and counseling. I worked in the local nursery as one of my jobs and my other job was working in an after-school play center where from 3 p.m. till 6 p.m. you'd work with the kids, help them with their homework. And I remember traveling 20 minutes and driving there every other day or something to work in this after-school play center. So I'd always been around kids and I think they gave me the job because Mm. I had that summer school experience, but that experience had come from being there. And so it almost just being, working with kids became normal yeah. for me and also being from a big family it just seamlessly naturally fitted in so I think that might have and also,
1: it too. yeah and also potentially the fact that because you feel things so instinctively and intuitively for example that pain in your stomach when you were younger you know you really felt stuff in the moment in like a raw sense mm-hmm. that was untarnished by your environment or growing up Loads of people obviously numb their feelings or repress them or are told that they're not allowed Mm. to have them. But maybe there was like a connection that you had with the, you know, the fact that children really do tend to often express exactly how they feel right there and then. And Mm. there's this kind of, I don't know, connection to that. You get that. So you can kind of like... yeah. What you see is that. what you
0: get with kids. What you see is what you yeah. get. And
1: I often when I do
0: panel talks and conference calls and and things where I'm having to present or host or yeah present an idea to hundreds of people, I often think that that's not as scary. What's scary is trying to hold down a classroom of kids because they don't care who you are, what you do, what information you're sharing, how much money you make, what color you are. It doesn't even matter if you've got a disability. They will listen or won't listen to you and but adults there's always an agenda with adults and I think that's what stopped me from necessarily having that like intuitive urge to help.
1: Mm. Kids just keep it real. <laughs> when did you find out your dad had cancer and what was that like?
0: I remember finding out when I graduated from uni this was before I started my master's course because he was sick for quite a while. And so when I found out it was almost on graduation day because he was really in so much pain and to get to the graduation, like suites and um, uh, ceremony, you had to kind of get, go up these steps up a hill. And I remember he was in a lot of pain. And so I think that evening it kind of all came to head that like, we need to sit down and talk. And yeah, I, I think I remember feeling like really, obviously really sad, um, but also really helpless because you want to help. And um, it was, yeah, it's cancer is such an, an evil thing um, mm. because it's traumatic. Even if somebody is going through chemo and my dad chose not to, he didn't want to go through any any of that which is like a whole story in itself, but he decided to just like, he, he didn't want to go through medic. He, my, he, my dad was somebody that didn't take medication. Even if he mm-hmm. was like falling apart, he'd be like, no, I can do this. Like he believed in like, you know, the mind is so powerful. And if you, you, you can heal yourself in a way, but also he just didn't believe in all this new age medicine, but you know, i to one part, like I can see his side of things in one spit in one sense, but in another, you kind of it is helpful as well. Um, but I think that's where his old school traditional attitude came into place, and also he was probably petrified finding out that he had cancer and being the man of the house and being so traditional and being such like a caregiver and having so much responsibility. I bet it was probably just incredibly overwhelming, and he thought, you know, chemo is such a hard thing to go through that to become weak before you get better without really even knowing if you will get better, is it worth it? Or should I just live out my day and time now feeling how I feel? And so I think, you know, seven years ago, I did not understand that. Um, And so for that year that he was sick and I think he was sick before that as well, but we didn't know about it. um, It was hard. It was really hard to go through that deep trauma of, Wanting somebody to get better and take a chance, and him not doing it. But I think in my adult years, I've kind of learned to forgive that, and also learned to understand that, which is more than anything, the core of where a lot of my pain
1: came from because I just didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And what cancer was he diagnosed with? Bowel cancer. Do you think he knew he was sick before he told you he was sick?
0: Um, probably. I mean, he probably didn't realise what was wrong with him. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe when he did start to think actually this is really really bad he thought maybe better to ignore it and that's when he had the big pain which was when it kind of came to loggerheads of we need to see what's wrong with you because clearly this pain is excruciating you can't get through it um and that's when he was officially diagnosed so I think he probably was petrified about what it is and that's maybe why he was so fearful of telling us
1: especially because he's been that Superman. He was, you know, Mm. strong in every part of his life and so present in every part of his life. And the reason I asked if he would have known maybe about it was I've had people on my podcast whose fathers, for example, have had cancer and um, passed away from cancer. Twice it's been, um, they've known about it before. And much like your dad, there's been this kind of very traditional mm. way of thinking that man of the house, I'm the strong one. As you say, the fear of weakness, I think is very mm. real for a man.
0: And the pressure to do that, like we as women, and I often say this, we don't lose any part of our femininity by having these conversations or tell or expressing with our friends A weakness or vulnerability or insecurity. Whereas for men socializing in that way and maybe with a group of men that maybe they possibly only met a few times, sharing something that they've gone through that's a bit vulnerable and secure, they lose a sense of their masculinity in a way. That's how they've been socialized. And it's not Mm -hmm. true, it's just a construct. But it's not that what examples do we have of men that show up that are vulnerable but that are strong? And so that's why mental health is so important to. Mm -hmm. understand and to promote and to talk about within my social media anyway Mm -hmm. yeah toxic masculinity
1: is a thing it's a big thing (laughs) we need to rid of it so Mm -hmm. when you were how old were you when you found out so this must have been when you're in your early 20s yeah I was I was 23 so you found out he was ill so take me from there how was your family coping how was your mum coping how was it for you on your own personally because obviously we all keep a face in front of everyone else but how are you doing without that face
0: um I was okay I was living at home I was in I was working two jobs and I was doing my master's at the time so I was out of the house a lot and I think purposefully I was putting myself under immense pressure to be busy often I kept myself incredibly preoccupied Uh, my mum was my dad's primary carer for a lot of the time and it was hard I think it was I would probably say it's the hardest thing I've ever been through in my entire life definitely would put my hands down and say seeing somebody that you love so much deteriorate so slowly in front of your eyes for that length of time feels like someone stabbing you in the back slowly and then slowly ripping your heart out and having that pain just elongated um and you know for a long time I couldn't talk about it because it was just too painful and like mm-hmm. I put myself into therapy and I found myself a counselor to have these kind of conversations with and bring it up and bring it up because at some one point it was just too painful to bring up My mum was trying to be so strong for him. And she basically became a nurse. Like she knew all the terminology. She knew about everything. Because at that point, like my mum was having to like deal with all the other things that my dad needed, um, which actually she shouldn't have been doing. A nurse should have been doing, but he didn't want anyone else to do it but her. And so Mm -hmm. I was, yeah, I think I was just, well, it was the hardest year of my life. But it was also, I guess, one of the, the times in my life where I realized, like, you know, loving it's hard because I'm, I'm often, I'm like, me, the way I'm predisposed is to try and find the light in everything and the lesson in everything. But actually, at that time and still now, I just don't understand. You know, I would never want anyone to go through that in order to find out a lesson because that was uh, the mm-hmm. hardest lesson to go through um so yeah it was a hard time it was just it was just shit time yeah the thing about bowel cancer that I don't think we really knew or he knew was that it's actually one of the slowest progressing cancers that if you get bowel bowel cancer you're actually somewhat lucky in a way because it is treatable and a lot of people that get bowel, bowel cancer survive so I think if he had known that and this is somebody that like my dad didn't even have a telephone I don't know how he ran a business, to be honest, because he didn't have an email address. He didn't have a telephone. And, like, sometimes I reminisce back and I think, you know, if he was around now and he still had the business, the way I love social media and I've built a whole business on social media, the way I'd be like, right, we're going to be putting you on social media. I'm going to have all my meetups in your restaurant. Like, it would be a whole different story. <laughs> yeah. but he, And I think that was the fear. Like, the information that we have access to now, he didn't have. And um, I think there was the fear of, like, the lack of information means that you – can just create all of the stories in your head which you know google can do that sometimes when you go down a rabbit hole but at least there are certain facts that you can find about cancer that if you know you've got it you will read the facts um but yeah he Mm -hmm. didn't have any of that information available to him but so I finished my master's and it was kind of at the end of my master's and really when I started to to have the conversation online about body positivity. Mm -hmm. I had just got signed to my first modeling agency. And I remember that was when it was only like a week or so around that time. It was around the same time that he passed. So I remember one of the last conversations we had was me telling him we're not, I'm not going on to do my doctorate. I've just been signed to a modeling agency and, you know, all the stuff that I've been talking about with body confidence and positivity and embracing yourself and, you know looking after yourself and standing up for yourself all of that is now leading me into this new career and and I'm going to be like a model that's representing something more and I remember him saying so are you going to be working for this Evans brand and I was like wait how do you know about Evans (laughs) like this is the first time me and him have ever had a conversation about Evans and I was like how do you know about that and then in another (laughs) breath he went well if you're gonna be the if you're gonna if you're gonna be a if you're gonna be a model be the best model there is and I was like typical even my dad on his like deathbed, is telling me like you better do good (laughs) so I was like okay I will and so that's kind of I think as well where a lot of my um attitude to my work ethic comes from like be the
1: best have conviction love it Mm. see it through and I was was gonna ask because yeah because how does it feel to when your dad says that to you as you say you know it's coming from a place of love not a place of pushiness it's you just want to so hearing that does that instill confidence in you does that make you think that you can do everything that that those words from your dad is that something that you're like yeah I'm going to conquer the world and I really can do it I think
0: there's a level of not I can do it but you have permission to do it and Mm -hmm. you you're able to everyone is able to and it's okay if you want that because I think a lot of the time most of us might think you know we're not deserving of it it's not possible and I don't deserve it even if it was and we Mm -hmm. hijack us our own ability to you know take control of our futures and I think from me my dad just gave me that ability to be curious and have high hopes and dream big because mm. he did and so mm. if you have that experience in your own life it's infectious mm. um so possibly that played a big part in the way I see the world
1: yeah I find it fascinating because I re September issue last night you know with Anna Wintour and the um Vogue documentary and in that she said that her dad was probably much to blame in a vermism because there was an application to something that they were doing together. It was like what do you want to be when you grow up and she was going to say work in fashion or something and he goes, no 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 no, you're going to be the editor of Vogue. So she just mm. wrote editor of Vogue and then she was like it was like it was then set in stone that's what I was going to do. and I just find it so fascinating because what a father can give their children but you know speaking specifically here of their daughter, I think, is that absolute confidence and, mm. as you say, permission that they can do and achieve their dreams. And they, and they are mm. big enough and they are strong enough and they are capable enough and they are adequate enough. And I think that's a really, really, really wonderful thing. And it's obviously something that your father was able to give you, as you say, mm. even on his somewhat deathbed, was able to still remind you that you were and are like
0: capable
1: mm. and adequate enough to do, to be the best mm. and to do exactly that. So I think that's such a wonderful, wonderful gift.
0: And it's it's also somebody, it's not just like your dad, but it's a person that you really highly respect that, mm. you know, if they told you that that per- they get a feeling about this person that's not right or they have a feeling about something that's not quite right like I really respected his decisions although some parts of me were like you're just traditional you're a typical Turkish man there was a level of softness to him that made me understand his concerns and so I just knew if he gave it that approval then it was going to work and there's actually no one Mm -hmm. else in my life and I remember feeling when he passed that oh my God, I can do whatever I want. I have no boundaries. I have no one to be accountable to. I have no one that can punish me or tell me off. I could go off the rails if I wanted to. I could not make this work work if I wanted to. And likewise, my brother was the same because we were both quite young. He was only 17 at the time. But both Mm -hmm. of us decided to harness my dad's energy of discipline and that really mo- like huge amount of motivation and make ourselves and make something of ourselves which mm-hmm. you know I I reflect back on now and think oh that was that was a lot of grief in that I was definitely grieving and not going and not crying because I was I didn't cry for over a year really and so you know part of it was like ah that's not the right thing to do but at least my defense mechanisms and coping strategies was that and not to turn to alcohol or, you know, drug abuse or any of those other negative things.
1: Grieving, as you say, is, you know, you need to distract yourself. You There's a coping mechanism behind then throwing yourself into work um, and achieving because you just need distraction. Or you can, as you say, throw yourself into alcohol and partying because you need distraction. Mm. Um, so do you think part of that belief in you was led you to be able to make that right decision, even within grieving? Of being able to just put that into productivity and something that's going to be positive. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And again, weirdly enough, my work was a, a level of self expression for me and it helped me to grieve. It was helpful until it isn't helpful. And I think that's what coping mechanisms are they get you through that time of trauma. And then if you still try to use that coping me- mechanisms when the dust has settled and you're back in normal life, it's unhelpful. So I would talk about empowering women and they and that opened a conversation to women that felt disempowered and I would have long conversations with my followers and aid them in changing their life and their circumstances or learning about how to feel more body positive and all of those conversations are incredibly draining but at the time I didn't notice mm. it because I was just like helping people and helping people helped mm. me and it was this cyclical cycle and so I really couldn't um sustain that over a long period of time because you'd burn out but I didn't feel it at the Mm -hmm. time because I I wanted to burn out so that I didn't feel but when you're so exhausted and Mm -hmm. you're physically and mentally drained because at the time I was also doing three jobs and then I went on to leaving my first job finishing my master's and then pursuing modeling full-time and that in itself is again can be really damaging on any sort of self-esteem that you may have left because you're Mm -hmm. on for castings every day. It's relentless. But unlike most models who would probably just wait for their agent to call and you go in and have the casting, I was producing my own shoots. I was producing my own social media content, YouTube content. I was networking my ass off. And this was a lot because I didn't have any contacts in the industry. I didn't even know Mm -hmm. the setup of the industry. I didn't know there were such things as PRs or management or... um, distribution labels or brands and you know people that buy product for the brands i didn't know any of these terms so i was just figuring it all out as i was going and then within a year i set myself a goal of moving to new york which was like the mecca of modeling for not only models but plus size models there was a handful of girls that were plus size models and they all lived in new york and new york was the biggest market and the most competitive and if you uh, have mm. ever watched like The Devil Wears Prada, that is literally what my agent was like, but he was a guy. Oh my god! And it's intense. It was relentless, but that was my goal, and I was like, I'm going to get through it. And I threw myself with no money in one of the most expensive cities in the world. I slept on my friend's floor on an inflatable mattress for three months, and then just like tried to make it work. And I remember at the mm. time my mum just being like, "Why are you putting yourself through this? Like, this is." ridiculous i just come home and I was like no I'm not coming home I'm gonna make this work and I stuck it out mm-hmm. for a year in New York and then I eventually was like okay actually I don't like New York I'm coming home and I was fed up of being broke so yeah it was it was like for I'd say at least I want to say three years but I also think it probably took me a while of coming out of that coping strategy but only probably in the last two years mm-hmm. have I realized like I
1: don't need to work that hard because there's no work-life balance. You probably saw your dad actually doing that growing up. It's uh, When you were saying that, I thought it was such... If you see someone working so hard, and I don't know what your mum and what her sort of work-life was like, but seeing that kind of continuous sort of perseverance and work drive can be... You don't even realise mm. if it's a healthy or unhealthy, because it's just what you see. Yeah. You once said... I think it was an interview with Bumble, but you once said how when you told your dad that you weren't going to sort of persevere with this, with your masters and child psychology, you said that you could tell in his eyes that he was thinking you're throwing your life away. Can you go back to that moment? Do you remember that moment? Cause he also just to be somewhat ironic is the person who potentially instilled that courage and that risk taking mm. um, person in you. So, I'd love to just go back there and just just see what that felt like.
0: Yeah, I think I was petrified, to be honest, to tell him that that wasn't what I was going to do because he was rooting for me. He really wanted me to have the dream of becoming a doctor, having my own private practice, working with children, even having, you know, you can have your private patients and you would have your other patients that would come to you that, you know, couldn't afford your service, but you you would must give it to them and you know we had He was. I always known him before I even knew about private and public medical care he would talk to me about like you know you'd have your name above the door that was your plaque you're a doctor he would instill you know you have respect you but you give back you you know know your stuff you make the money and you are successful but always give back that I always knew that that's what he felt for me but I think at the same time, and maybe it was because he was slowly leaving us, I had to step forward for myself. And, you know, I do believe maybe if he was still here, I wouldn't be doing this. I probably wouldn't Mm -hmm. because there was not really much space for risk. Even though I was taking a risk, it was almost like a calculated risk. And he came from like a very medical upbringing with lots of medical people in his family. So being a doctor in some kind of medical space made sense. But I had said, and I said in that Bumble interview, I feel like I'm still doing the same thing, just in a different way. Like instead of being mm-hmm. in a therapy room talking to one person, I can talk about mental health to 290,000 people on social media. And so I don't mm-hmm. think the essence of what I'm trying to say is, is, has changed in any way. It's just the format in which people receive it.
1: Yeah, oh, completely.
0: Parents, I'm not a parent yet, but I know that my sisters just want my, my they want security for their children and it's mm-hmm. a security in which they understand and they can somewhat control whereas you know deciding to be a model in an industry that has no models that look like me was a mm-hmm. very irrational risk to take like first of all who who's going to be your client who's booking you who's paying you who's even going to sign you and there was something in my gut that was like no people need this now more than ever and i just feel it's going to work and i i had no experience right i i was not a trend a- analytics person or knew anything about the fashion world but something in my gut worked and I was in the right place at the right time and I had a relentless Mm -hmm. drive behind me and it was on the curve of the curve ironically the curve industry picking up it was when Kim Kardashian was in it was the rise of the plus size blogger because we had so many social Mm -hmm. media platforms people of all different shapes and sizes could talk about fashion and larger girls were also really into fashion but there wasn't a lot of fashion brands so when they realized that these influencers were selling clothes they realized that actually this is a market that we should all be a part of so that's when you saw the rise of high street chains extending their size to more plus sizes so my um the my the brands that would hire me just started to grow and there wasn't a lot of plus size models in the game so I just kind of rose to the top quite quickly like now there's so many plus size brands and there's so many plus size models and it's you know in seven years it's changed so much but back then it was I can imagine my, how my dad was thinking, but for some reason, I just didn't think that I was like, this is going to work. And then I guess, cause Mm. there was nothing else he could say. He was, he was going and there was no doubt about it. And there was no change that could be made. He was never going to get well overnight. Like these, this was the end. And I think even then he just mustered up the courage to say, well, just be the best at it. And he just, just believed in it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: What was it like when he did pass away?
0: It's funny because I don't remember the date. And I don't, I really forget how many years ago it was because that's definitely something I blanked out. Whereas like my sisters, one of them knows everything. Um, But we we all dealt with it very differently. And I think for me, I don't remember the date. It was around March sometime. And it was a bit before my birthday because my birthday is March 18th. And it was like a couple of weeks before that. Um, and I think we just all was waiting for it to happen. We all knew it was coming. And it was, he was in a, I forget the word now, those homes that people pass away in that have had cancer. I think i would literally like blanked out on most of like the things I should know about this time because we were there every day for weeks. So I should know it, but I can't remember, but he was in one of those places. And yeah, it was a really peaceful time it was really peaceful. It was, it was hard, but there's, it gets to a point where I don't know if there's many people that have, that listen to your podcast that have had people that have passed away to cancer. You kind of want them to be at peace and are really just Mm -hmm. wanting them to, to just not be in pain. And Mm -hmm. I remember the night we were all around the bed together as a family And we were always there with him, but just not all necessarily at the same time, because there's just so many of us. And my two older sisters had families and and thing like having to take them to school and other priorities. But they would always come in the evenings to see him. And maybe it was one sister one night, one sister the other, me the other night. But I remember on this night we were all there. And my brother, my little brother was there. And my little brother was the last one to come because we for some reason, I don't think we made him come as much he was just a lot younger and I think he was probably studying or something but this particular night he was there and I remember leaving with my little brother and going upstairs because they had bedrooms for the family members and we were asleep and it was that night that he passed and my mum always says that it was because we were all there and we all said goodbye
1: I'm sure you've heard of this but there's this thing where people see there's this pattern that sort of exists with people with for example a terminal illness like cancer where you know that you're going to die and it's that thing of needing to see certain people before that happens but then also not wanting anyone to be there when it happens. Mm. Your dad obviously I mean it's so funny cuz as much as you may have felt he you know was like oh god what road is she going down. I mean like he's the person on many levels who's created this like super driven both through his death and his life but like this incredibly driven dedicated focused entrepreneurial risk-taking empathetic giving back person I feel like he sort of shaped you so much and Mm. in such a sort of positive way like even in in his death as you say with his grief with the grief that you were experiencing you know that burning out which you needed at the time somewhat but that also at the same time would have just helped that helped you build what now is a really wonderful platform where you can speak to so many people about such important topics Mm. so it all just feels there's this you know with every sort of terrible darkness there's this huge light as well that he's given you in in his death I feel as well what do you think your dad would think of where you're at now
0: good question good question I would this question always gets me a bit choked because I would always Mm. love to actually hear him say or see get his opinion um but he'd be so proud I know he would be proud he'd be so proud even just recently since being at home so I bought my first apartment in London in zone two which is almost impossible for any single person to do in this day and age under the age of 30 but um I managed to do it all alone with no help and only a year later have I finally made my garden really cozy with like a deck chair and one of those little hanging swing chairs and grass and plants. And my (laughs) dad loved sitting out on the garden area that we had at my family home and just like reading his newspapers and having his coffee. That was his thing. And so I was, I just made it nice the other day and was sitting out there and I was like, he would love it. He would love to come here. This is, this is his thing. Even when I went to university, we had these incredible grounds at my uni. He would be like on a Sunday, randomly call me and be like, we are just passing your uni. We have um, pastries and coffee. We're going to come by and sit in the ground. And you know, you're a uni student. You're like, what the hell? Like, I need to get dressed. I need to get my boyfriend out of the house. I need to clean my room. <laughs> like yeah. you're what, 19 and 20 and your dad's coming to like go and wander in the uni grounds you're like oh for god's sake only my dad would do this but he would always come (laughs) and he would always be like have you eaten and he would always come with like bags of shopping from tesco's just in case my fridge wasn't full of things that i was like i'm on a diet or i don't need that and he would just always come and bring it he's like i don't even eat meat anymore and he'd be like but you might eat it one day just put it in the freezer like that was my dad and so i know that he'd be so proud of being able to come here and just see what i'm doing and where I'm working and how I've positioned myself in the industry and who I'm helping, I'd say. And then he'd mm. probably say to me, And so, what is the next plan?
1: But- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's the next move? I love that. Yeah. So, the last question I like to ask everyone before we leave is if your dad was listening to this episode right now, what would you want to say to him?
0: Oh, you ask such lovely questions. You're going to get me crying at you. Um, I mean, I actually, I have conversations with him all the time in my mm-hmm. head. Um, Or if I'm on my own and people can't think that I'm crazy. But I, I just often say to him, like, we did good. We did good. And you know what? And I know he's not here, but, like, it would have been OK if you had just said that you were scared. Like I often say those kind of things, that it's okay to be scared, even though you're the man of the house and you're looking after us. It's like, we got you. We can take care of you too. Because I think that would have made a big difference. And people need to hear it and be reminded, even if it is just from their little kids.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. This has just been the most amazing episode. So thank you so much for talking to me and sharing your amazing story.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm going to go have a little cry now. (laughs)
1: I'm joking. I know. Thank you so much for listening to my episode with the incredible Jada Setzer. I think Jada's episode leaves us with such an important message to listen to how her father, even on his deathbed, and even when she had just told him she was going to embark down a career that he definitely didn't fully approve of, because, of course, like every parent, He wants his child to have security, which modelling, as we all know, does not necessarily give. But he still mustered the strength to tell his daughter that if she was going to go down that career, she was going to do and be the best and those words pushed Jada not because he'd pushed her from a competitive side but because he reminded her of her worth and that she had as Jada so beautifully pointed out permission so thank you so much for listening thank you Jada for coming on and being freaking phenomenal and I hope that you all have a fantastic rest of your day I'd love to thank a few people who are new from season one and those are Ed Garland who did my incredible icon cover and graphic design and branding, Sophia Jennings who's my co-producer she helps me see guests she gives me such incredible advice and she's so talented and James William Blades who is the legend behind providing Daddy Issues podcast new music by the absolute brilliant artist that is Julietta. A special thanks goes out to Warren at Wargy Productions. And thank you guys for listening. I love hearing your thoughts, so don't hesitate to get in touch. If there's anything at all that's affected or resonated with you and you'd like to get some support or follow up on anything that's been said, psychotherapist Julia Samuel has an incredible website, www.griefworks.co.uk. Once again, thank you so much, and I hope you enjoyed the episode.